Jonah. Just want to let you know that I'm going to send in a thousand roaches to infest your sphincter. Oh, well, Dave. I'd like to see you try, you fucking magniloquent Montebank Muppet. Nice. Well, you're about as good of a co-host as a concupiscent cat in a dog pound. Dave. Too far? No, no, I love being told I'm useless. Turns me on, actually. I just wanted to say I, I love when we do these succession insult-offs. Me too, buddy. That being said, I don't know who reminds me more of a sentient enema, you or Cousin Greg. I'd call Cousin Greg more of a sentient aneurysm because he's the true villain of this show. Did Christmas just come early because that take is a gift? We're going full fucking beast because this is Galaxy Brains. And today we're diving into the delightfully depraved world world of HBO's succession with special guest Jason Concepcion. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's disappointing son, Jonah Ray. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive at the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Today, we're sitting at the table with the nation's worst family for succession. Joining us for this veritable feast is our dear pal and host of the X-Ray Vision podcast, Jason Concepcion. But before we play Bore on the Floor with Jason, we should probably hold a brief mental shareholders meeting in a segment we call Logic Brain. First, before we start this episode in earnest, I just want to say we are going to be spoiling most of season three of Succession. We're going to talk about the show all the way up to the penultimate episode of the season. So if you haven't watched the whole season three, just Turn it off. Don't listen to this. I don't want to ruin the majesty and the splendor of season three of Succession. All right. With that said, the elevator pitch for this show is pretty simple. A fictionalized version of Rupert Murdoch and his family goes to war with each other over the fate of their multi-billion dollar corporate empire. To be honest, I kind of rolled my eyes when I first heard about this show. But there's way more to Succession than that very quick pitch. It's the brainchild of British comedy writer Jesse Armstrong, who also created the classic sitcom Peep Show. And like Peep Show, Succession is really about pathetic people who just want to be loved. And no character on the show wants to be loved more than Kendall Roy. Hearing our five points? Sure, sure, you go. Okay. But I think the headline needs to be, fuck the weather, we're changing the cultural climate. 
played by Jeremy Strong, Kendall seems at first to be the clear next in line to take over Waystar Roy Co. from his dad, Logan, played by Brian Cox. But no, actually, Logan kind of hates Kendall, who he sees as a soft little boy incapable of the sort of ruthless aggression needed to be a Fortune 500 CEO. Kendall also has a serious substance abuse problem that he can't seem to shake. At the end of season one, when Kendall relapses at his sister Siobhan's wedding, he ends up in a car accident that kills his drug dealer. Kendall does nothing to help this poor guy as he drowns in a lake. It's a devastating scene in a show that never really makes you feel good about yourself or the world around you. But it is incredibly funny. Kieran Culkin is a nefarious little weasel Roman Roy, consistently has some of the wittiest, most brutal lines on TV. I'd lay you badly, but I'd lay you gladly. And maybe the most beloved of all these loathsome characters are Cousin Greg and Tom Wamsgans. You can't make a Tomlet without breaking some Gregs. A sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern for this Shakespearean tragedy about modern American capitalism. Nice reference, Dave. Yeah, I got that from the movie Chasing Amy. Oh. Anyway, if we're going to talk more about Succession's hilarious brand of dystopian misery, we're going to need to get our hands dirty in another edition of... Critical I don't think any time we've ever talked about this show, you've been particularly excited to talk about it. Dave, it is time to... Reveal the truth. In this show, the history of this podcast. Here we go. Here we go. I've never lied, but I simply can't watch Succession. (laughs) And I think we can still get over and talk about all the stuff we want to talk about in this way that I will now play the part of the unknowing audience. (laughs) Okay. let, Let me ask you this. Why do you not connect with it? When I heard about the show, I was intrigued. Adam McKay, who's who's really funny. Will Ferrell involved. I love Kieran Culkin. I've always enjoyed him. And this is like a weird small scale. It's a very personal thing. In the smallest version of what's happening in this show, where, you know, Logan has a health scare, and then there's all of a sudden the family goes apeshit trying to figure out who takes over the company. When I was growing up, my family had a small plumbing company. My grandfather was kind of this uh, patriarch that was the head of the Pipers and Fitters Union in Hawaii. And on a small scale, you know, comparatively, but like in big for our family, you know, this was like, this was Kaimuki Plumbing. This was the fucking company. This was the family company that was started by my grandfather and my grandmother. And when my grandfather died, the family went apeshit and they ate each other alive. My dad and my uncle and my aunt did not talk to each other for the last 10 years of my dad's and my uncle's lives. Wow. So that was the kind of the thing that made me, I was like, I don't like this. It's not that it was a perfect family, but like it fucking imploded everything. And I was seeing this show that was done on a very large scale and it was hard for me to watch. And I don't like that my real life was getting in the way of like what is becoming like the biggest comedy in a long time. Yeah, I think it's partially the biggest comedy in a long time because it appeals to people's purient interest in the lives of the very wealthy. And that's another a problem. I've come to it as well as I say, uh, you know, I say, well, I don't really dig it. I don't really dig White Lotus. And the uh, the response that people give me is like, well, you know, it's satire. <laughs> and I go, well, yeah, so is Entourage. So Entourage, Ballers, Succession, and White Lotus are all the same kind of satire. This is us 
watching, hate-watching rich people, wanting what they have but not liking them. As much as I want to eat the rich, this is a, a weird schadenfreude for people. And I love Peep Show. You know that. Oh, yeah, of course. There's a feeling I have of this is a, this is entourage for the NPR set. That's an interesting way to look at it. That's my galaxy brain take of it. And I don't mean to, like, you know, derail. And, like, honestly, it was just that old family stuff that made me feel not good. It's interesting that you point this out because it is something that is a barrier for a lot of people. The idea that this is, even if they go to great pains to kind of make it gross and sickly looking and sort of decaying this world that they're in, it's still... Yeah, they wash everything out, right? It's all very like fluorescent. Yeah, the lighting, but also just the way things are framed. There's a mundane nature to a lot of the compositions of the shots. There's also this very sad music, this very sad classical music that Nicholas Bertel, the composer of the show, brings in to these shots that would otherwise have like rock and roll on them, like a guitar shredding or like a hip hop song or something. Like you don't hear a lot of hip hop music in this show. L to the OG, dude be the OG, and he playing. Which, you know, I think is, is similar to any sort of you know, classical filmmaking, like filmmaking set in, in the past in, in these sorts of courts, like Barry Lyndon or something, where it's like, this isn't very cool. These people, the world is about to pass these people by. You're kind of enjoying seeing these people who are in power sort of unravel in front of you. Yeah, but I think we've had so much of that over the years. I mean, for the past 20 years, like, you know, starting with kicking and screaming, and uh, you can go on to Squid and the Whale, Igby Goes Down, which also has a Culkin. These are, you know, good movies, but they're just, you know, movies you can you can dip in and dip out. And to live with the malaise of rich people for hours and hours at a time with a television show, um, rich malaise is something that's kind of been wearing on me for a bit, you know? I think there is an, an aspect of the show where Jesse Armstrong is looking at it as an alien. I am going to observe this culture. And I'm going to read you a quote from his New Yorker profile that came out at the beginning of this season. He said, one of the things that strikes me when I've read about these families, and when he says these families, he means like wealthy media families, like the Redstones or, or the, the Murdochs, who of course are the kind of the initial basis for this show, is that when you get that combination of money, power, and family relations, things get so complicated that you can justify actions to yourself that are pretty unhealthy to your well-being as a human being, or you don't even need to justify them because the actions are baked into your being. That, of course, is not a thing that we can relate to, right, as regular people. But the thing that you can relate to, and the reason why I like the show, is what you brought up earlier, which is you saw in this show elements of your own family. And that kind of transference of emotion is the basis for drama is like, oh, I can see myself or other people that I know and I can learn something about human nature from this. And I think this show really at its heart is about generational trauma and how parents pass down trauma to their kids and those kids pass down that trauma. And it's a, a story we've seen a lot. The Sopranos was basically about that. Six Feet Under was about that. Mad Men was about that. Like a lot of these popular prestige dramas are about that question, but I do think it is the primary question of our lives and what we do with ourselves on this planet is 
how do we not continue to ruin the world? We're calling some of these shows dramas, like you said, with Sopranos, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Succession. We're calling these dramas, but they're they're not. They're tragedies. It's weird that we stopped using that term, a term that is very much tied to all of storytelling, especially, you know, Greeks invented like that was a genre for them. And it's funny that we just got rid of that. But, you know, it's it's not as sexy, too. It's like HBO's new tragedy is so good. It's so solid, man. Like, I was like, so like, you know, tragedies has kind of been like, you know, they've been doing a lot of comedy tragedy, like hybrid stuff. This one's straight tragedy, dude. It's so fucking brutal. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons why people don't use that word anymore in relation to drama or, you know, any kind of art is because we've lived through so many real tragedies. You don't think the Russians were living through when they were making like come and see? Different culture, different culture. Very different culture. You're right. Correct. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, like Dostoevsky is writing these incredibly sad novels at a time when, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of sadness in that part of the world. But boy, they really revel in that stuff. You know, I don't mean to paint Russian culture with a broad brush, but I think most Russian people would be like, yeah, we're pretty sad. You know, I don't know what the fuck is going on with these people. We're always so depressed. You be cold all the time. You fucking try it, bud. <laughs> Enjoy that. <laughs> but like those people embrace it in a way that American culture does not. OK, you and I have both lived through now. The 2000 presidential election that goes through the Supreme Court, 9-11, the Iraq war and Afghanistan, you know, that whole the whole war on terror, Trump becoming president, which whatever, you know, give us a fucking one star review if you love Trump. I don't give a shit. <laughs> that sucked for America. Yeah, that was a bad night. It was a bad night and it was a bad four years and it remains bad. Yeah. And then we lived through COVID so far. So, like, the idea of tragedy is is so difficult for people to assimilate into their lives because they are we are all kind of shuffling aimlessly through tragedy every day. We're, we're always being confronted by sadness. Americans don't know how to embrace that sadness. So we create things that make us sad, but there always has to be an element of irreverence, or comedy, hope, something that's going to cut through the sadness to make us feel better when we walk out. So this show is just like, and I love this show, but it's comedy in the midst of this story of Kendall Roy killing himself for three seasons. Yeah. And so let's like walk through that, these characters and what they mean to you. I'll give you one more Jesse Armstrong quote here that I think is incredibly insightful about you know, what motivates these people. He said, for people who come from powerful families, there is nothing in life quite as interesting as being at court. For these people to be excluded from the flame of money and power, I think would feel a bit like death. Mm. And that is probably the most important thing that you need to hear to understand why people do the bizarre things that they do in this show. And I want to go through really quickly. I want to bring back an old segment you might remember. Oh, shit. You might have fond memories of this. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> it's Galaxy Dads. <laughs> Galaxy Dads. Does anybody want to call their dad? Okay, nobody wants to talk to their fucking dad. So, we've started. So let's buy this fucking company. All right, so Galaxy Dads, let's start off with the dad of all dads, the paterfamilias of the Roy family, Logan Roy, played to obscene perfection 
by Brian Cox. He's incredible. And it's funny because it's just right in his wheelhouse. The Brian Cox, just that he's so good at being confidently more in control than everybody. I am surrounded by snakes and fucking morons. Yeah, he's such a prick in this show. And he's so good at those kinds of monologues of bile. His ability to withhold emotion and to be calculating is unparalleled. I will point to the scene in the most recent episode where uh, Logan and Kendall sit at the dinner table and they're having their kind of um, their come to Jesus moment, their parlay about the future of Kendall in the firm. And Kendall is hosting and he's had this meal prepared. And the entire time, Logan is like, did you poison my food? <laughs> but he, he never straight up says it. He's just like, mm, maybe your son can try my food. I brought my own food, et cetera, et cetera. Like, these kinds of things are so wounding to Kendall, his son. The idea that he would maybe kill his dad. But the thing that really is the saddest part of this scene is Kendall gets on his metaphorical knees, essentially. And he says, I want out. Dad, we can't do this bullshit forever. Maybe I want your clothes. You can do the mail. Keep you rattling around. He's cashing out. Yeah, he's cashing out. These people are like, they're gambling addicts. They're addicts in a way of this, like you said, the court. Like, it's like, that's the thing that kind of drives them. Exactly. It's, it's, like, not, it's not so much the money and the power. It's the idea of like the wheeling and dealing of it. Yeah, the money no longer has meaning. The, the clothes, the cars, the helicopters, the private jets, none of it has any meaning. That's the baseline. That's all the baseline now. That is life. And he's like, I don't want it anymore. You won. And Logan, knowing this, Brian Cox playing this character, just kind of smiles at him and is like, no. Now the man, Kendall, is dead. He can't even leave this world that is so toxic to him that has created his addiction problems. And so by the end of the episode, when he presumably, we don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure, dies. You're like, he died already. <laughs> he died 20 minutes ago when he had that scene where he said, I want out of the court. So if I'm ranking dads <laughs> on this show, Logan is the worst dad we've ever seen. Wow. Doing Galaxy Dads. I can't even rank him. He is so terrible. He doesn't even qualify as a father. He's like um, the ward of an orphanage in a Dickens novel where he's just <laughs> like he's Oliver Twist's uh, guardian and he's not giving him enough gruel. Wow. He's terrible. I hate to say this because I love you, but you're kind of evil. Don't talk about things you don't understand. One thing I want to I say as we move on to talk more about the show is these characters to me are not villains. There is only one villain in this show, and that is Cousin Greg. Hey, hi, hi, hi. I'm involved in a criminal conspiracy. Oh, really? Yes. Yes, I am. Cousin Greg is the villain of this show, Jonah. He is the ultimate bad guy. But here's the thing. It's like, when I saw Cousin Greg show up, I immediately thought about my brother, who was like, he's not a dumb guy. He's just a sweet guy. My brother's a very sweet guy and was kind of just like, was told that you should be here and be ready for this and be a part of this, which from my dad, you know, of course. But like my brother, like he didn't know that it was like supporting my dad or like kind of signing some of these papers here. It was like, he didn't know he was doing anything bad. I'm just kind of assuming that like Greg is very similar to that. I don't understand how he could be the bad guy. He seems to just kind of have this like sweet, if not like just not totally informed. Dude, he doesn't realize that it's all bad, right? 
So my brother is just naive, and that's the vibe I get from Cousin Greg, is that he's just, he's naive. And so how can he necessarily be evil? He doesn't seem to be, from what I can tell from people talking about the show, he's like, he doesn't seem to be, you know, totally corrupted with all the extreme wealth and the fucking narcissism. Mm, but that's my point, Jonah. Greg wasn't born into this madness of the show. He's now choosing to be evil. Mm. Okay, this is a conscious decision to corrupt himself. He's covering up Waystar's cruise scandal. He sides with Logan over doing the right thing. Being with Kendall might not be great, but it is more on the side of morality than siding with Logan. Or he could have sided with his grandfather, played by James Cromwell, who is, by all accounts, at least a morally upright human being. His simplistic need to survive in this den of thieves is why he is going to end up at the top of the company at the end of the show. He's hungry. The rest of them are just kind of dilettantes fucking around. Greg is the one who desperately needs the success. Ooh, interesting point, Dave. But I'm hungry too. Have you ever visited the California Pizza Kitchen? Have I ever? They make a Cajun chicken linguine just the way I like it. Ooh, then hop in my Volkswagen Jetta, buddy, because we're dining like kings tonight. Wow, we already made it to California Pizza Kitchen. That was an incredibly short car ride. Yeah, exactly. Uh, th this is a podcast, Dave. A couple seconds of room, room, and they get the point. Oh, welcome to California Pizza Kitchen. Can I take your order? Hold on. <laughs> this is a drive-through? Yeah, this is a CPK Express. Um, Dave, you see, on a podcast, the only limit is your imagination. Also, the amount of time the sound designer has to find a clip of a Volkswagen Jetta engine idling. You know, it just it's, it just makes it easier this way. Wow, podcasts are so neat. I hope I get to host a podcast for the rest of my life. Hey, dickheads, you're holding up the line. What the fuck do you want to I'll have a pizza. Well, you're in luck. We have plenty of pizza. And guess what? It's free. Exactly. Podcast that you wrote. Because this is a podcast that you wrote. You can have as much free pizza as you desire. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did, did you hear that? Yeah, Dave. The pizza's free. Mm. No, no, that voice. It's glitching. Something's, something's wrong. Something's changing inside the show. Yeah, something's changing. Or can you hand me a slice, another slice of the free pizza you conjured up just now? Uh, of course. When we come back, we'll be joined by Jason Concepcio. Stop moaning in my ear to discuss season three of Succession and whether or not Cousin Greg is the biggest heel on the show. Uh, how's the pizza, by the way? It's delicious. Would you like to try some? Maybe later. Live deliciously with me, Dave. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. After hearing that glitch in the show, I'm wondering if the world around us is starting to collapse. You worry too much, Dave. Everything's fine. Introduce the guests. Come on. All right, fine, fine. This week, we're joined by our second repeat guest ever, the host of Crooked Media's X-Ray Vision and America's ultimate Waystar Waystand, Jason Concepcion. Jason, thanks for coming back on the show to talk about, I think, our favorite show on TV right now, maybe. I think that that's right. I think that's correct. I I'm just going to jump into this thing. Holy shit, last night's episode was one of the most explosive of the entire run of the show. 
It was a growth bomb. You know, it was like streamers and betting and all the Asian sports leagues all in one. It was just explosive. (laughs) (laughs) It was sort of like getting your own metaphorical dick pic on your phone. You just go, whoa, holy shit. First, is Kendall dead? No, come on. No, he's not dead. They're not going to kill him like that. I think what happened was, and I saw a lot of people saying this, I think after the extremely bracing and disturbing conversation with his dad that was prefaced by let's not tear our guts out and then, hey, let me remind you about the time you kill the guy, I think that Ken was just trying to figure out how long that guy stayed alive that he killed <laughs> when, he, when he drove him into the creek. I think he was just kind of like trying to empathize with the final moments of the young caterer he killed. That's a fascinating way to look at it and definitely not the way that I was thinking about it. I could see your your perspective on it that it wasn't a death scene. Here's why I think it was a death scene. Okay. We have gotten to this point where Kendall has tried both tracks to get what he wants from his dad. He tried to be his dad in the first season and then he tried to kill his dad, metaphorically, in the, this season and the end of season two. Then he's like, okay, I can't win his love. He's not going to give me the company. I'm going to crush him because I have this leverage over him. He doesn't have either of those. He has failed at both things. So when he goes to his dad and says, I want to meet with you, I want to talk this out, and Logan comes to that villa to have dinner, what Kendall is saying he is is doing is he says, I don't want to be myself anymore. I don't want to do the things that make me me. I don't want to be a part of this family. I don't want to be a part of this company. I don't want an inheritance. I just want you to give me money and leave me alone. And that is so devastating for a character like Kendall to say, I want to abdicate everything that makes me me just to get away from you, just to move on. So to me, that is a death scene, that he is going to die. And the delicious part of that death in the next episode, I think, will be that the entire episode will go on without anyone knowing he's dead. Wow. He has been sequestered in this other villa. He is not allowed to go to any of the events. And so his absence will not be shocking to anyone. People will be like, yeah, of course Ken's not here. Interesting. He wasn't invited. Mom, mom disinvited him from the wedding. He's just in that villa. Do you think they're going to they're gonna find out from the press asking them about it? Yes, I think that is going to wrap the season up where they're just like, they're starting to get phone calls or something. Yeah, what do you think about your brother's death? They're like, what? Do you think it's going to be one of those situations? Yeah, and that, to me, is the tragedy of it. Hey, Shiv, uh, crazy uh, uh, call I just got. Is Ken dead? (laughs) Do you have a comment on that? I agree with you that I think there's a world in which Ken's utility in terms of the kind of cycles that he is constantly orbiting in. I love my dad. I hate my dad. I want out. I want in. I want to kill him. I want him to love me kind of thing. I, I do think we're ending, we're reaching some kind of end point. I think there's a world in which, you know, what Ken is fishing for at that moment is, no, I want you to stay in. No, buy you out. Listen, I know we've had our differences, but like, I want you to stay in. Now he did kind of get that in a psychopathic Roy family kind of way. I'm not letting you leave. I know I said that I was going to let you leave, but that was a joke, right? You guys stay in the mailroom, you fucking dork. Yeah. You're not fucking going anywhere. Are you kidding? Now I think obviously Ken wants to kill his dad on some level. And I think he's got the gun. But to me, the question of the series, in a way, is will he use it? What is the kill shot? The kill shot is, I killed a guy and my dad, what's the criminality I know of? My dad helped me cover it up. 
I ended a guy's life and my dad used his connections and he used his, uh, you know, his personal henchmen to cover up the crime, to cover up the whole thing. He's aware of it. He knows it. He had his finger on the button of that one. And to me, the question is, does Ken have the guts to pull that out? Will he get to a place where he's like, you know what? I know how to do it. And I don't care what building is left standing when I drop this nuclear bomb. I'm not thinking about CEO. I'm not thinking about any of that stuff. If I really want to do it, here it is. Here's the thing that I can do. And I think all that's off the table if if Ken is dead. Uh, yeah, I can see what you're, you're saying there, that his redemption story could be interesting. It's not even redemption. It's just like, am I willing to destroy everything to kill my dad, including myself. Well, there is an, a redemption, I think, in the idea that he would be able to come clean and be honest. Because honesty is not his his superpower. It is the opposite. You know, that is his kryptonite. He cannot be honest. He has created, throughout the three seasons, a narrative around himself. And a narrative that his father very astutely punctures in that scene. Where Kendall's like, I'm a good person and you're not. <laughs> and Logan's like, motherfucker, you killed that guy. You let him drown. To me, Kendall shows every time that he is incapable of self-reflection. He is incapable of self-awareness. And he is incapable of exposing his own reality. And so I agree with you that there's interesting drama, maybe potentially to that, that idea that he sticks around so that he can be a part of this kind of investigation, this podcast investigation that is mentioned offhandedly. <laughs> I hope it's us. I hope it's Galaxy Brains in the world of Succession gets the job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I have to announce that I am playing a podcast. My part will be played by Timothy Simmons from Veep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to be, uh, let's see, who should play me? William Jackson Harper. No, it should probably be somebody else. <laughs> Paul Walter Hauser. <laughs> yeah, because of Big Big white guy. Anyway, you know, I just, I think that it would be so difficult for the show to make him in any way righteous. So you see that when he is given the chance to do the right thing, he is so incapable that he will undermine himself. Firing his lawyer, not cooperating with the DOJ investigation in any substantial way. Alienating Greg. Just all of these things that he could have done differently. And so I think if he's still around for this investigation, this podcast investigation, there'll be a little bit of character wheel spinning, where it's like, this would be maybe more delicious if everybody else had to deal with it. And it became Logan's problem because Logan covered it up. Kendall is, I think, ultimately not an active character. He reacts to everything. And I think that's part of the joy of watching him fail is because he's constantly pinging off of other characters instead of like doing the thing you know he needs to do. I just don't know. I just, I think you have an interesting take on it. I'm just not sure making him part of this is going to be active enough for this character who's really reactive so much. Listen, they've been foreshadowing Ken's death since season two, all the scenes of him standing on the edge of buildings, uh, you know, peering off the, the top of a skyscraper. I guess I'd be surprised if it, if it happened right here, just right in this moment. I, and I guess my other question is, do you kill a main character like that in a way that it's like, we don't know if he's dead as a cliffhanger on cable, on, on streaming? Yeah, I don't see why not. This is a week to week as opposed to a, a binge 
model. So I think that we're talking about it. Like, I think this. Yeah, we are talking about it. <laughs> we are definitely talking this about cliffhanger it. This cliffhanger is setting people on fire. You know, I got, like I said earlier in the in the episode, text after text after text of like, did you watch it? Did you watch it? One of them was from you. One of them was from our producer. Like, did you see it? Did you see it? That's why that model is great. Because if this show all came out and everyone watched it over a weekend, people would be talking about it for two weeks. Now people are talking about it for months and months. And every week it just gets reignited. That's the argument against the binge model. And this is my final point. And I, you make all good points. And I do, I, listen, I don't know. I have no idea where we're going. But I think your, your note that Ken is a reactive, often not active character is, I think that's absolutely right. All of which is to say, he never does anything. He never does the thing. So did he actually do the thing this time? I don't know. I, and we'll see. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question that I think is going to be answered in a very elliptical, odd way in the next episode. It is not going to... Anything that this show does is never head-on. But speaking of being very blunt and head-on about things, we have to very briefly talk about Jeremy Strong's New Yorker profile. Because that is the other thing people have been texting me about nonstop today is, did you see what Jeremy Strong has been saying in, in the media? I want to talk about the fact that Jeremy Strong is either so deeply in character that he's been playing this character his entire life, <laughs> just preparing for this, or he really has a lot in common with this character, the need. There's a striving and a need and a seemingly unfillable void in this man where he just wants to be taken seriously. And I think that is, that is the ultimate Kindle Roy character flaw. This profile, he comes off as something even beyond method. You know, he talks about the path a lot and the work. And uh, there's a solemnity to it and an intensity that is, I respect it. There's something kind of inspiring by it. I don't have to work with the guy, which is <laughs> which is like you sense a lot of, especially from like uh, some of the comments about how this impacts the crew and some of the other cast. You do sense a kind of, a slight weariness with Jeremy needs, he needs like a, a diary, his mom's diary, his character's mother's diary that we're not going to use in this. Like he, he needs props. He needs different things. The thing that I come away with is I can't stop thinking about Jeremy Strong being like, hey, uh, Jesse, Jesse Armstrong, showrunner of Succession. Jesse, can I actually kill a guy in this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe they're, uh, maybe they're uh, ill you know, terminally ill and and they don't have that much longer to go and they can just like sit, you know, obviously we make up them up so they look like a younger, very healthy uh, gentleman. Uh, and then I can just drive. I think I could do it. I can, you know, if we save it for the last take, we get everything you want. And then the last take, you know, just let me try one where I kill a guy. You got to be able to feel it. And I need to feel whatever that energy, that pulsing energy is when someone drowns. Like I can't, I can't just do it. When I climb out of that river and I haven't killed a guy, I'm not sure I get there. I'm not sure I get to that ledge, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell this story real quick because it's uh, this is being brought up a lot because of you know Brian Cox is like he's worried about the actor playing Kendall Roy, and people have brought up this story which I, I always love, and it's uh, on the set of uh, Marathon Man. Yes, <laughs> you know Lawrence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman and. Uh, Upon being asked by his co-star how a previous scene had gone, uh, one in which Hoffman's character has supposedly stayed up for three days, Dustin Hoffman admitted that he too had not slept for 72 hours to achieve emotional verisimilitude. 
And Olivier responded with, dear boy, why don't you just try acting? <laughs> this is in the profile, too. This is in the profile of Jeremy Strong. He has missed the boat. And I, I think his performance on this show is remarkable. It's remarkable. It is so good. And so part of me is like, maybe I'm the asshole for not letting him kill a guy <laughs> season one. No. <laughs> but at the same time, like every single cast member that they interviewed, and there aren't many besides, besides Kieran Culkin who talked, say he's kooky. What's going on here? Stop it. It's making my life harder. <laughs> Again, I will say, listen, there's no roadmap for creative work a lot of the times. How you get there is how you get there, et cetera. For me, it's just like, how do these things <laughs> impact other people? I just wanted to quickly read this a couple of lines from the profile here. This is about uh, Jeremy performing in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7. Between takes of the trial scenes in which the yippies mock Judge Julius Hoffman, played by Frank Langella, Strong would read aloud from Langella's memoir in silly voices, and he put a remote-controlled fart machine below the judge's chair. I would kick that guy's ass. I swear to God. Yeah, come on, man. See, that's just the thing I'm saying. Like, if it's about your performance, I get it. You know, like, go with God. Yeah. But I'm just trying to play a judge up here, man. Like, <laughs> you know? What the fuck? Uh, okay, I want to rapid fire through some stuff because we are really encapsulating everything that's happened in season three of Succession up to the finale. So there's a lot of questions that are still floating in the ether. First one, and this is your pet theory that maybe seems like it's on shaky ground right now, is Tom wearing a wire. I do feel like it is on shaky ground right now. I do think that there is a world in which we discover that Tom's maybe not in a cahoots with any kind of like federal entity was just taping stuff a la Greg. It does seem on shaky ground, but it did seem, I mean, Tom was acting, you know, he was acting weird. He was acting strange. He was acting, uh, he was acting slightly bizarre. And there is still the question, I think, of who Tom was talking to in a couple of those scenes from, uh, you know, back earlier in the season when he would get a call and then all of a sudden he'd slink away to talk to somebody about what was going on with his possible journey to prison, et cetera. Yeah, there is something bizarre going on with him. I just always chalk it up to he's married to Shiv Roy and she's constantly keeping him on edge. The scene in the last episode where she basically says all the things Ugh. she really means to say to him, but in the guise of <laughs> pillow talk and foreplay, yeah, I would be on edge all the time if my wife actively didn't love me, which I guess was true of my marriage, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, David. Oh. <laughs> oh, God, Dave. Let's go to dinner sometime. Yeah, we'll talk through this. <laughs> yeah, okay. Did Roman send the dick pic to his dad on purpose? No. I know. Somebody was like, well, what if he did it to just bring down Jerry? I'm like, why would he do that to Jerry? Yeah, like ultimate galaxy brain shit? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I, this was Roman uh, high- on his own supply, the kind of like victory chemicals coursing through his endorphin system, and he just he just missed the detail as has happened to all you know all of us at some point, but not at that level of of importance. Uh, speaking of dates, is Greg the most sexually active and healthy member of the Roy family? Because he's got a girlfriend now. He's dating the girl from that podcast that I don't listen to, or at least it seems like they're dating. She gave him a peck on the cheek. You know, I don't 
I think Shiv is probably pretty active. We've seen her. But not healthy. Let's be real. That is not healthy. Certainly not healthy. And I think, I will say one note I have for this season is the idea that Comfrey is out of Greg's league. I don't know where that comes from. I don't understand it. Maybe it's the fact that it's it's hard to ignore all the, uh, you know, the profiles of, of Nicholas where that's like, oh, the hot Nicholas He's here. He's incredibly handsome. Destroying New York. Yeah, he's six seven. He's got NBA size, and he's a good-looking guy. He's got a nice mid-range jumper. He's devastating from the elbow, and he plays good. He could plays good lockdown defense. Yeah. So it's hard for me. It's hard for me to get to. Comfrey is out of Greg's league. I think it's more that Greg is such a doofus, and that is the big thing that I want to talk about here as we wrap up. Is the question that we posed earlier in the episode, which is: Is Greg Ashley the true villain of the show? <laughs> And my theory is yes, because every single one of these characters, if it's Shiv, if it's Roman, if it's Kendall, if it's Tom, even poor little Frank, you know, everybody, Jerry, everybody is, they're kind of stuck on this path. Everybody's kind of like, well, this is just what I do. This is my life. I was either born into this or I succeeded so much that now I am so deeply ensconced in this world that I cannot get out. Greg has chosen this. Every step of the way, Greg makes the morally compromised decision to stick around. Even when he's given the out by Kendall of like, look, you can, you know, you can be my consigliere. I will help you with your defense. You can just be part of this kind of team. And Greg chooses to stay with Logan because of his self-preservation instinct. I think Greg is the worst of them all because he didn't have to do this. He could have also just stayed with his grandfather who would have given him his inheritance and he could have gone off to do whatever good thing he could have done. But he chooses to be part of this reprehensible sphere of influence. I can see that. I think from a similar uh, point of view, I feel like, I kind of feel like Shiv is the real villain. Obviously, Logan is, you know, like some kind of primordial monster. He's evil, incarnate. But it's hard to peg him as the villain because, like, of course he is. He is a thing that just exists, you know, like a malevolent force. But Shiv is like, she's got this Hillary Clinton kind of, I am progressive because of me, because I've worked for Democratic politicians and I project this kind of equanimity. I'm the good one. That's my brand is I'm the good one. And yet... I am the person who went and talked to a cruise victim and said, do you really want to do this? Why don't you take the money? Why don't you, why don't you just take the money? Forget it. I am the person who is tearing down the most prominent woman at my family's company just to fuck my brother over. So I think there's a world in which it's Shiv, but I also accept your perspective. I think I have to go with Greg because, and this goes back to a, a Jesse Armstrong quote that I relayed earlier in the episode that these characters cannot breathe without the oxygen of the fight, the being in court, the kind of like the, the gamesmanship and, the, and the, the fencing that is this up and down battle of who's at daddy's side, who's, who's the number two, who's the best boy. So it seems to me like because Shiv grew up in this and this is ingrained in her DNA, even as she tries to get out, as they all try to get out, they're all dragged back in the pilot by him and his birthday and then his almost death. And then Shiv starts to see a window. She peeks into the the castle and she sees that there's an absence. There's an area near the throne that she can sit next to if she's if she plays the game right. 
she tried to not care, but she <laughs> cares just as much as the rest of them. And that comes from the way that she was raised, I think. I think Greg didn't grow up with them. Greg lived in a totally different environment. I guess they knew him a little bit as goofy cousin Greg the Egg, but they didn't really know him, like know him. And so he he saunters into this world and ingratiates himself in the strangest way possible, but he succeeds. And that lust for power just keeps growing. Now he's dating. Now he's like wearing polo shirts and, and availing himself of fine wines. And he's not eating at CPK anymore, which is a shame. Greg, Greg being into CPK was the one thing I related to with him. It was like, I like mm-hmm. CPK. The Cajun chicken linguine is excellent. Here's where I do agree with you. Greg is us, right? Greg is, you want to think that you believe in an anti-racist world. You want to believe that you know, money is evil. You're a leftist. You're a social Democrat. Uh, you believe in equality and Medicare for all. You are Greg when faced with the possibility of hundreds of millions of dollars in your bank account. You are Greg when faced with the opportunity to taste a rare bird with a fine silk handkerchief over your head. You would try it. And in trying it, in tasting those forbidden fruits, you would be seduced. That is the disturbing reality of the character of Greg. Yeah. The episode where they're at basically the fake CPAC he ends up like on the shoulders of these white supremacists. I mean, they're not like wearing MAGA hats and like clan robes or anything. But they rarely do. They rarely do these days. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, but Tom points it out. Everybody notices that he's like now the best friend of all these people. Whatever Greg believed when he stepped into this world means nothing to him now. And that is my point. Like, it's scary to look at that character and say, like, yeah, that'll probably be me too. And that sucks. And that is the world that we live in. And that's why I love this show, man. It's, it's a show that... Uh, same here. It makes you really hate yourself, <laughs> which is, I think, a healthy thing. <laughs> it is it is what keeps you sane. It's what keeps you from becoming megalomaniacal or cruel. To not face that kind of internal darkness is uh, is very dangerous. And it is what turns you into Cousin Greg. <laughs> I agree. Last question. On that note, <laughs> on that sad, sad note, who should be the new head coach of the Sacramento Kings and why would Kendall be a better coach than Luke Walton? Oh my gosh. This question comes from our producer, Kylie, who is from Sacramento and desperately wants your take on the Kings. <sighs> well, I, I think that anybody would probably be better than Luke. That said, you know, like Waystar Royco, it's not... The Kings, it's a systemic issue. It goes much deeper than the coach. There are a multitude of issues at every level that are rearing their heads all the time. Bad drafting, poor free agency decisions, bad strategy, you know, a kind of a picture of the team that is unhinged from reality, etc. <laughs> I don't think Kendall would do uh, worse than Luke, but the problems do not lie with the coach. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... Kendall at least would come in to the job with a lot of hot white knight energy and just be like, we're going to fucking change it all, man. We're going to fucking jam through this. Yes. And we're going to break it and then we're going to put it back together. And when we put it back together, it's going to be a beautiful fucking Picasso, man. Picasso wasn't a sculptor, dude. Doesn't matter, dude. Doesn't matter, dude. You're not seeing the real truth of what we're going to do. And that hot manic energy is going to get you five, six, seven wins. 
you know, and then like, he's going to crash. <laughs> and then by the all-star break, you're going to be uh, out of the playoffs uh, already. But at least you have that bright moment where Kendall is firing on all cylinders and he truly is just incapable of coming down from that high. So I, I think he'd be a great coach compared to Luke Walton. I would just love to see him, you know, they're playing against the Lakers and they get blown out by like 45 or something. And then he is later photographed like hanging out with LeBron James. <laughs> Dude, we got we got to hang out sometime. Man, I know this place. <laughs> hey, man, th- like I know you beat us and that was but that was imperial. That was a majestic performance. And I feel lucky to just like be here watching you absolutely stomp my team. <laughs> 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 on that note, I think uh, we could depart from this episode. Not only do you have great insights about this show, you have a really stellar Kindle Roy impression that I want to hear more often. Thank you. Thank you. If you are not listening to X-Ray Vision and you are listening to Galaxy Brains, you're fucking up. You should be listening to both of these shows. You're fucking up. Because then you get way more succession talk and way more Dune talk. All the things that you love. Like, you're going to get that on X-Ray Vision. So please tune into that. Subscribe to that. And uh, Jason, thank you for for coming on again and gracing us with your presence. Thanks for having me, y'all. Each week, we wrap up the show with a galaxy brain take from one of our listeners. Here's one from our pal, Susanna Polo, now. Hey, it's Susanna from Polygon. You don't have to put my name in here, but uh, here's my hot take. (laughs) We did anyway. Carnage is the Waluigi of Spider-Man. I will not elaborate on this. It's self-evident. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Carnage sucks. I don't like Carnage. But to me, Venom is a Waluigi of Spider-Man. So it's just like a copy of a copy of a copy. And by the end of it, it sucks. No, Venom is Wario. Okay, fair enough. Yes. And Carnage is Waluigi. Yes, you're right. You're right. I I went a little too far with with this. But yeah, you're 100% right. Carnage is Poochie. No, Venom would be Poochie. Venom, I think, is Poochie. Yeah. Because they invented Venom for the purposes of making Spider-Man dark. Yeah, exactly. Let's give him a black suit because people wear black in comic books now. Remember every fucking superhero had a black suit back then? Remember Superman's... Yeah, they all went dark. Stupid suit. Ugh. I still have that action figure of Superman in the black suit. No cape, silver wristbands, and his long Eddie Vedder hair. Ugh. Oh, that's right. Awful. The Man of Tomorrow. Boo! Yeah, I really hope that, like, you know, when there's a third Venom movie at the very end, Tom Hardy goes, um, hey, Venom, it looks like you have something to say. Well, do you? And then Venom goes, yes, I certainly do. I have to go now. My planet needs me. I mean, that is is very possible that he will do that. Um, If you want to call in, we'd love to hear your Galaxy Brain take on next week's episode topic, Spider-Man No Way Home. And the various other Spider-Man movies. And we'll be talking to Susanna again about that. So you got to tune in. Anyway, if you want to call in, our number is 213-570-8069. And it's also listed in our show notes. Give us a call. Leave a voicemail with your take. Uh, Why not? Uh, Just please make it weird. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, we're going full steam ahead into the multiverse when we cover the Spider-Man franchise and the upcoming Spider-Man No Way Home. So you're just not worried about all these glitches in the audio of the show? Dave, how many times do I have to tell you, you are the host of the show and you control everything. Not true, Jonah. I don't control everything because Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is also engineered by Dan Turek with music from Galvam Trickishin. 
In addition to that, our executive producer is Matt Patches, and our developing producer is Zach Mack. By the way, just so you know, Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant, and Russ Freshdick is a director of special projects. Uh, and I should, before we go, give special thanks to Andrew Melanzek, who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah. And I'm Dave. Take us home, Steppenwolf. Wait, well, we haven't done that bit in months. Jonah, something is wrong. I've come to enlighten you to the great darkness. I will bathe in your fears.